Good evening again, and welcome to our fourth large group of the semester for RUF. Tonight we're continuing on in our series in the book of Exodus, and we've titled that series uh, Being Known and Living Free, because Exodus is all about knowing God, being known by Him, and how He gives us true and lasting freedom. And tonight we'll be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. This is really a continuation of the passage we looked at last week, chapter 3, where God has met Moses in the form of a burning bush and called him to lead his people out from slavery in Egypt. And obviously, right, that's a big ask of Moses. And he's really just equipped with God's name so far. Like, how am I going to convince everybody to do this? God says, you know, you've got my divine name and you're going to take on Pharaoh and his army because I'm a fascinating and frightening fire. But the truth is, Moses here in this passage is going to be kind of, you know, crying crazy talk, right? Moses, if we're reading this so far, we probably think Moses, the wanted murderer from chapter 2, are you talking about the outsider from the royal palace? Or are you talking about the simple shepherd that's now living in Midian who couldn't possibly be the guy to deliver a whole nation from slavery, right? seems unbelievable, Uh, that he would stand up to Pharaoh and and deliver the people. In August of 1560, two Scottish men were arrested for treason when they opposed some unbiblical worship practices from a local magistrate that was serving under Mary, Queen of the Scots. If you're familiar with this story at all, uh, at this time you would know that uh, there's no separation of church and state at this point in the West. Uh, no such thing as freedom of religion. What your monarch and what her subjects or his subjects worshipped and how they worshipped, that's how you worship. That's how you were going to serve. Your government was also the head of your church. The queen and her dukes and duchesses, they told you how and who to worship. And these two men resisted uh, when they found Uh, that the worship practices didn't line up with how the Bible taught them to worship. In response to these arrests, a pastor, you may have heard his name before, by the name of John Knox, he wrote a circular letter enlisting the help of some powerful lords in the area, some people who could protect the rights of these two arrested men. For that protection, uh, Mary got wind of the letter and then accused Knox of treason for standing up for these two guys who stood up against her and her subjects. And Knox was summoned to a trial of the Queen's Council in 1560, where he was pressured to agree that his letter that he had sent, you know, asking for help for these two men, to agree that that was treasonous, to plead for the mercy of the Queen, and to condemn the actions of the two men. Knox, believing the men were right to oppose the worship services, and uh, could not recant his support or his defense against the Queen. At the trial, uh, because of his you know, obstinate nature, Mary's right-hand man, the Chancellor of Scotland, responded to Knox's lack of remorse. He says this, You forget yourself. You are not now in the pulpit. Essentially, the Chancellor was reminding Knox that he was free to be a reformer, free to you know, unpack the Bible, say what he wanted in his pulpit, but to go against the Queen herself, right or wrong as she may be, That'll get you killed, right? Essentially, you're forgetting where you are. You're not in the church anymore. You're in our court. And right now, if we want, we can take you outside and chop your head off. And that'll be the end of it. To which Knox replies this, 
I am in a place where I am demanded of conscience to speak the truth, and therefore the truth I speak. Impugn it whoso list. Uh, John Knox could have been beheaded where he stood for his act of defiance, but it was worth it to him if it pleased God uh, to defy the queen. And 500 years later, fast forward, that seed of obedience has blossomed into what we now call Presbyterianism. Uh, It's not a stretch to say that without Knox's courage, like RUF, this thing that we do would not be here if Knox had not stood up and said, like, you kill me, you kill me. It is what it is. I'm, I'm, I am speaking the truth, and that's whatever it costs. Now, if you're anything like me, you hear a story like that. I, I'm an idiot on the Enneagram. I don't know if y'all know anything about the Enneagram, but I love a good, like, stick it to the person in power story. If you're anything like me, you hear a story like that, and you long to live, like, that kind of life, a principled life, being committed to something so much so that you would die for it, right? To be used by God even, to have real purpose and meaning to make a difference in someone's life. Doesn't even have to be as grand of a scale as the one, you know, Knox is on, right? You don't have to start the next, you know, denomination. You just want maybe to do something purposeful for God to use you in someone's life to serve, to be meaningful. Here's the rub though, right? If you're anything like me, you also don't know how you'd respond if God did come knocking in that way. Right, did come asking that. You like to think you could do what it takes, but there's d- this deep sense in all of us that we don't have that kind of courage. We're not that eloquent of a speaker. I couldn't say something like, it's still hard for me to say, impugn it so who, it who so lists. Yeah, I messed it up. Impugn it who so lists. Right? God can use a man like Knox, but certainly not me. I'm too introverted or scared or ineloquent. Uh, maybe even I'm too awkward or sinful. This surfaces for me, uh, honestly, you know, when someone asks what I do for a living and I just pause for a second and I'm like, this is about to get awkward. And I tell them I'm a pastor. And then they apologize for all the curse words they'd said like two seconds before they asked me what I did. Right. Cause they feel all awkward. Suddenly there's a distance where there once was the possibility of friendship. You guys feel it when you have a roommate or a friend who you avoid talking about faith with because you're afraid, like, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I can't help this person? Like, what if, what if I say the wrong thing and then I turn them off of God forever, right? What if uh, I, I don't know, have all the answers? What if I mess up? You feel it in your class discussions when your ethical commitments as a, Christ, sorry, as a Christian come into conflict, uh, conflict, conflict, come into conflict with, you know, maybe cultural assumptions, and for the record, not just of your classroom, but the person who holds your grade in your hands, right? Um, For the record, I'm not vilifying all professors and saying they're all like liberal, evil people and God's not dead style. I'm just saying that on occasion, right, you're going to come up against opportunities and times where God has placed you in a position where if you're faithful to him, right, it could cost you something. It could be hard to do so. And, and you wonder, do I have what it takes? Am I the person to do this? Am I the person to stand up and say something? Still, you know, others of you might feel inadequate, not because of other people even, right? Their opinions or what they're going to think. The obstacle actually is you, right? For, for some of you, usually we become our own obstacles to God using us because of sin or suffering, right? One of those two things. With sin, we convince ourselves that God doesn't want us because we've crossed him one too many times, Right? Or we had one too many doubts or we committed a sin and 
man, if you knew how bad this one sin was, you wouldn't think that God would ever have anything to do with me. Right? He must have... He must not want uh, to redeem me. There's no way. You know, if it's suffering that causes us to be an obstacle, we assume that because of all the hurt and pain and sadness in our lives, God must not be bothering with us, right? He's, he must have forgotten us. He's uninterested in my life and how I'm supposed to be operating in this world. There's all these barriers that whisper constantly to us, not me, not me. God doesn't want to use me let alone desire me, uh, he, he can't, or at least he won't. Our fears and our inadequacies pile up to a mountain that we think God cannot climb. But tonight's passage is God doing just that with Moses. Right? He comes to God in the same place as us, afraid of what God will require of him, begging him, in fact, to send someone else, but God won't let those whispers have the final word. His assurances speak louder than the fears that Moses has in in such a way that I think actually we can get a lot of comfort from how God addresses Moses' inadequacies. So here's essentially the comfort offered to Moses and I think also to us by extension. We can all be used by God for two reasons. We're going to look at two things from our passage tonight. That God uses what we have and God gives us what we need. Two points, just God uses what we have and God gives us what we need. Let's read Exodus 4, 1 through 17. Let's read about that. Then Moses answered, remember he's still in front of the burning bush here, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. When he says they, he's actually talking about the Israelites, that the elders uh, of his own people won't listen to him. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is it? What is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. I can't help but hear that Lonely Island song. I threw it on the ground. Sorry, that's before your time for a lot of you. It's fine. And it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, Or listen to the first sign. They may believe the latter sign. They will not believe even those two signs. Or listen to your voice. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, 
He will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be your mouth and with his mouth I, uh, and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which to do with which you shall do the signs. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, let's look at our first reason we can have confidence that God can use us, right? First of two, God uses what we have. Look with me in verses two through nine. Let's hang out in verses two through nine. Uh, particularly in verses two through five, God calls attention to Moses' staff, right? Moses is a lowly shepherd, and as such, he's in possession of a staff. God calls him in the middle of him tending sheep. Uh, and if you know anything about staff, usually they're used to essentially beat sheep into obedience, right? You tell them where they want to go. I don't know if you guys know this about sheep, but you actually have to hit them on the opposite way that you want them to go. That's how obstinate they are. Uh, if you hit them, like trying to get them to go this way, they'll go that way. So you hit them and you like pull reverse psychology on them. Right, so he's got, he's got that staff. Uh, used to, you know, uh, fend off predators and, and uh, beat his sheep. And notably, right, God does not call Moses uh, by giving him time to prepare for their meeting, to gather whatever he thinks he might need uh, for the task ahead. He gets him while he's just doing his normal thing, tending sheep, and he uses him just as he uh, has, like the, just as he is with the things that he has. This is probably why the whole interaction ends in verse 17 with a reminder to take the staff with him, kind of like an odd way to end it. You might think like God would end the interaction with, and I will be with you, you know, but he doesn't say that. He says, and don't forget your staff, right? God wants it to be an ever-present reminder of where he found Moses, like where he's coming from. He was just a shepherd when God called him. Couple this with the use of Moses' hand in verses 6 through 8 and the Nile in verse 9, and it becomes obvious that God does not expect Moses to achieve something or prepare anything to secure Israel's freedom, right? He doesn't give him time to go grab the right things that he needs or go on some sort of a quest. He'll use whatever Moses has access to. And this is noteworthy because he, he could have done something else, right? If you think about this story, God could have done something else. He has angels at his, at his disposal. He's also God, so he could have just created some terrifying you know, mythical figure that's just going to come down and intimidate all the people in Israel and just destroy them in like a single swing, right? And it would have, that would have meant instantaneous liberation for Israel, right? Uh, The final plague where God kills the firstborn of the Egyptians demonstrates that like, if something was bad enough, if God had just started with something bad enough instead of like a staff, it could have, it could have been over before it started, Right? God chooses to use ordinary things in extraordinary ways. The deeper significance here, though, is that it's not just that God uses the things that Moses has, asked, has access to, like a staff, a hand, the Nile River, but how he uses them. Think about it, right? Consider the staff for a moment. The staff, he turns into a serpent, which Moses has complete control over. In fact, he can grab the end of a snake. I don't know, how many, do y'all have any experience with snakes? Right? Anybody have experience with snakes? Do you, can you grab them by the tail and it be safe? Does that mean that they're not going to you know, bother you? Like, that's literally one of the worst things that you can do is to grab them by the tail because you know what they do? They turn around and you're lunch. Right? Like, that's how it works. 
And yet Moses is told he can grab it even by the tail and it will be safe to him, right? It turns into a serpent for a reason that Moses has control of the serpent. The serpent uh, in this time symbolizes Egyptian royal authority. Right? If you've ever seen pictures, but also, you know, of, of uh, embalmed, what are they called? Mummies. Uh, if you've seen like mummies and caskets and things, they would have, Egyptian royalty would wear headdresses, that were uh, modeled after pythons, right? Or sorry, cobras, like a cobra-like headdress. And God is saying here that while you guys have your like fake authority, I have real authority, right? I can transform things into the very thing that you think gives you power and I control it, right? Think about the hand for a second. Leprosy, right, is a skin disease and it says it gets white as snow. But what would end up happening if leprosy took over a a body is that uh, honestly things would just start falling off. If you got leprosy on your nose and it spread, it would just literally your nose would start to just fall off. And if you got it on your hands, like fingers would just come off of your whole hand. It's a skin disease and it means that death is actually encroaching you while you're still alive. Death comes to a human hand and so the point that God is making is he can go in and out is that God creates life and death, that he controls all of that and can do it in a flip of a switch. Lastly, think about the Nile for a second, how God uses that. It's a source of life for all of Egypt, right? Egypt is founded upon the idea that like this Nile River is fresh water and we can use it to irrigate crops and to like sustain life. And without it, it's over. There's no water, other water source around Egypt. They are completely dependent on the Nile for their source of life. God turns it into blood, a sign of death, right? That God uses these common items. He doesn't use some other thing. He uses all the things that are right around and available to Moses. It's a signal to his power and ultimately to the Egyptians that God can do whatever he wants with Egypt, right? He can do a lot with very little. And in fact, Moses being included in that, right? Moses, not very much. God indeed uses what we have. He doesn't ask us to pull ourselves together, to make ourselves awesome, to to be used by him, to be worth his time. He comes to us as we are and uses that actually as uh, to his advantage, right? Whether that's tending sheep or maybe it's learning a second language, whatever it is that you are doing, God will find you where you are and use your gifts, your talents, the things that are around you, right? I don't know if you guys are on this cross section of TikTok with me, but have y'all heard of an account called Jet Bentley? Have y'all heard of a Jet Bentley? Well, if you haven't, essentially the entire point of the account is that uh, he's the son of an iron chef uh, who lives in Canada named Sisuri. And he brings his dad, like this kid, uh, Brent, he brings his dad like fast food items. Essentially, he'll bring him, you know, Starbucks or he'll, he'll bring him Domino's pizza. And he transforms these things into gourmet dishes in the course of like three minutes of TikTok, right? He turns a Domino's pizza into calzone toast with quail egg and caviar. He turns a Starbucks frappuccino and some cake pops into an apple tart with flaming espresso rum sauce, Right, as amazing as Iron Chef Suzer Lee is, right? Here's what I would say: is that it doesn't even compare to what God can do with our meager contributions. Right? He takes a quarter pounder and turns it into beef Wellington. Yeah, I mean that's impressive. But God takes a staff, the hand of a murderer, 
and some river water and decides that he's going to overturn the biggest, baddest kingdom in the ancient world and tell that king of that kingdom that he'll listen to Moses from now on, a shepherd working in Midian, right? And then he does. He's going to do all these things, right? Here's the question, like, what has God given you? Right? What has God given you? What talents or abilities, unique perspectives do you have that God can use? Look, I, I'll say this. Some of you can learn languages easily. Uh, maybe God's going to call you to some other country where you're going to minister to some tribe that doesn't you know, speak the English language or something or has never heard the Bible before. I, you know, maybe you're going to be called elsewhere. Maybe you're going to be called no further than your own backyard. I don't know. Right? You might be just good at baking. Or cooking, and you can serve others by making people meals when they're experiencing grief or loss. Here's something that I can encourage you all with, right? I don't, I can't speak individually to all of your gifts, but I can say this: you have a body, don't you? Right. That means that you are gifted uniquely for the ministry of presence. Right, a ministry of presence. God has given you a body that He wants you to use, and do you let Him? Right? Do you show up? and go where it might not be comfortable to go, right? Are you willing to enter into other people's suffering and their sadness or anything like that, right? Do, you, do the AirPods, you know, do the headphones sometimes just maybe occasionally come out so that you can notice someone else for a moment, right? Can you end the incessant scrolling for long enough to ask somebody else how their day is going, Right? Some, of these, some of these things right, are things that everybody can do. You are, it's, these are things that you absolutely possess right now by the virtue of the fact that you are still breathing. A well-timed hug can mean 10,000 times more than 10,000 words. Right? Uh, you know, eloquence and being cool and all that stuff, like that doesn't compare to being present. Also worth noting here uh, by way of application that Moses uh, could not have known um, – either that his stint in Midian was preparing him to possess a staff that would lead the people out of Egypt, right? That would deliver a nation. Uh, I think it's also an encouragement to us as we think about that God uses what we have, that you don't even know how God is giving you the things that you're being given right now, right? Especially you guys in college, like you're studying, you're learning, you're growing as, as young people. That's important. You Regardless of how hard this moment in your life might be, I want to encourage you that wherever you are and however you're being found tonight, that, that God can be in the process, even right now, of equipping you with the things that you are going to need for the next, for the next trial, for the next stage, wherever God's going to call you. You can't be sure how God is preparing you. I mean, as Moses Right, would have thought that you know, it was God's judgment upon him as he flees Egypt in the wake of murdering someone, right, killing an Egyptian. Right, as he's thinking, like, this is God's judgment, you might be thinking, man, everything in my life has gone wrong. God's forgotten about me. He's judging me. And I would just say, you have no idea how God could use that, how he might actually be preparing you. Maybe now I will say this. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, Nick, man, that's all well and good that he uses, you know, what I have, you know, and I don't have a lot, but, you know, uh, sure, you're right. I'm at least embodied. I'll take that. Uh, I can't argue with that, that line of reasoning. Uh, but you might say to me, but you don't understand how incapable I am, right? Yes, like I have some things going for me, but you don't know the things that I don't have going for me. You don't know the problems I have, the, the, the shortcomings that I have. And Maybe you have trouble speaking like Moses 
or you're socially awkward. Uh, maybe there's no way that you think God could use an introvert like you, right, who just wants to stay home. When you get the text and somebody says, hey, I can't make it today, and you go, oh, thank you. I don't have to go meet with people, right? Maybe there's right even a sinful past or a present that you're sure disqualifies you. You know, it's one thing to talk about what God can use that we have. Here's the next question. How does God overcome what we lack? This brings us uh, to our second last point, that God gives us what we need. Look at me at verse 10. Look at me at verse 10. Now Moses is not just objecting based on, you know, not being believed. Earlier he was like, you know, no, one are, no one's going to believe me if I come. You can't expect me to go there. And God answers that. The Lord will take care of him being believed with these signs. Now he looks inwardly and finds his own limitations, right? His own shortcomings. He's not eloquent. The Hebrew literally says that he has a heavy mouth and a heavy tongue, right? Not entirely sure what that means. It could be that he has a stutter, right? That something's actually wrong with his speech or just that he's not, you know, charismatic enough, right? He's not, I'm not the visionary you need for this job, right? Uh, I've been told that a few times. Nick, I'm not like you. I'm not, you know, I'm not able to get in front of a room like, so what? <laughs> right? This is, you know, th- this is, you know, Moses's excuses. You know, maybe I'm not, I'm not a visionary. I'm not able to communicate that well. Or maybe he's just spent too much time with the lowly Midian shepherds to have like polished enough Egyptian, right? The language at this point, maybe he's forgotten it. Whatever it is, it will be a hang up in communication with the Israelites and getting them to follow him. And therefore it's going to be an even bigger hang up with Pharaoh and getting him to let the people go. Surely this will be an obstacle that God cannot overcome. Surely this limits God's desire for him, right? And he just says, like, you got you to gotta find somebody better. But consider how God responds in verses 11 through 12. It's worth noting, Moses' doubts, he does not get angry with him. When he first voices this and he says, like, you don't understand the problems that I have, God responds in verses 11 through 12 that uh, he has made man's mouth, you know, that he can make him mute or deaf or seeing or blind, that's the Lord's job. It's not immediately apparent in the English because of how short our first-person pronoun is. But you pay attention to how the word I is used, right? It's actually several consonants long in the Hebrew. But the word I is, is worth drawing out here. Moses focuses on his own I in verse 10, right? I am not eloquent, right? That's the problem, right? You need me to deliver the people. I am not eloquent. Here in verses 11 through 12, though, The I am tells Moses, right, that's God's name, Yahweh, tells Moses what his I, what his I means, right? It is not I, sorry, is it not I, Yahweh, who makes mouths, right? And later, I will be your mouth. What does this mean? It means that Moses has forgotten his place in this rescue plan, right? He's thinking about I, how am I going to do this? You understand, I'm not good at talking. I can't do this. I, 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 right? He's looking at himself, and it's impossible, right? When he looks at himself, it's impossible, and rightly so. Because it is Moses who's expected to speak and lead the people out of Egypt. He's not the one who's going to overpower Pharaoh. He isn't the hero of this story, right? I told the story earlier about John Knox. Also, not the hero of that story, <laughs> right? He was empowered and able to do what God had called him to. God is the hero of this story, it's as if God is saying, I'll be the one doing the talking, thank you, right? Oh, I can't do, I don't, I'll talk, right? You just show up. You just show up, okay? I will take care of it. 
Moses doesn't need to worry because the same God who can do all those signs made his mouth and will fill them with the words he wants him to say. Now, that should have settled the matter, right? God, you know, telling him like, man, you aren't the hero. I got a plan. I'll fix it. I'll make sure it all works out. You can trust me, right? That should have settled the matter. But we get one last glimpse of the Lord's provision in verses 13 through 16. Here, Moses just gets flat out sovereign. Look at 13 through 16, uh, right? Oh, Lord, uh, please send someone else. That's actually a really nice way of, of rendering it. It should just be like, send someone else, right? Oh, Lord, send someone else. Uh, but it's made as a request. So they add please, like it's supposed to be a request, but it's really more like, I ain't doing it, right? God gets mad at him in response. Moses no longer, right? If you notice this too in verse 13, he no longer uses God's divine name. It's not capitalized anymore, right? Verse 13, right? Oh, my Lord, it's, there's lowercase O-R-D. He's creating distance from God and he says, you got to send someone else. As a concession, right? Then God tells him that he'll give him Aaron and what will become, you know, kind of a, a two-person chain of command. God will speak to Moses, then Moses to Aaron, and Aaron to Pharaoh. What Moses thinks has happened, right, is that his burden has been lessened, right? Oh, yes, okay, great. Yeah, we'll share it together. But really, like, I would just like to point out, what's actually going to happen here is that he's going to share in the glory, right? He thinks, he's, he thinks he's getting to share the burden, but he's actually going to share the glory, Maybe this explains why as the two actually meet with Pharaoh, Moses later on is going to end up doing basically all the talking with Pharaoh, right? Even though he's like begging him, like, don't make me talk to Pharaoh. He's going to basically be the only one talking to Pharaoh for the rest of the the interactions. I think it's probably because once he's there, right, and they're confident that they're going to win, now he wants to do the big thing for God, right? Now he wants to be used, right? Either way, I would say this. It's worth noting that God gives Moses what he needs to do the job. Right? He won't be thwarted, but he might use somebody else. Right? He'll move on and use somebody else. If you don't want God, don't want to be in his service, don't want a relationship with him, God will respect that. Like God will give you over to that. But his will, right, very clearly in this passage, is to give you everything that you need for a relationship with him. Right? And that's, we see that all the way through the Bible, and chiefly, like, we see that in Jesus. Right? That God gives us what we need in a way that Moses can't even imagine. Right? He, he gets a staff and he gets the things. He gets Aaron. Uh, you know, he, gets, he gets what he needs to be able to, to do the job that God has called him to. But do you understand that like, Moses would have longed for Jesus, like an actual, for God actually to go with him, to come down to earth and to be the leader of his people. And now we have that. Right? We're not looking to Moses to lead us. We actually look to God himself, that Jesus did not stay far apart, did not just tell us, like, I'll, I'll give you what you need. I'll give you a staff. I'll give you. He became for us a Moses, right? a way better Moses, and went to the cross, died, and reconciled us to God so that uh, we are free in a more free way than Israel ever could be. Right? Yes, that, that it's awesome that they were liberated from their physical oppression, that, from their slavery in Egypt. But you are liberated from your slavery to sin. If you put your faith in Jesus, sin no longer has power over you, that you are a new creation and that God loves you and you are reconciled to him, despite your wandering, despite your rebellion. Here's what I'll say about that, that if we do have that gift, if we do have what we need in Christ, and more so than even Moses was given, 
Uh, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? I'll say this, uh, you know, God gave Moses the words. When you are in places where you're like, I don't know if I'll have the right arguments. Like, you know, Nick, you study theology. I haven't read the right books. I don't think I can make the right arguments. I don't know enough to witness to somebody. You don't understand. I can't talk to my roommate about this because they have questions I don't know how to answer. I'll say this, like, one, God gives you scripture too. He puts words in your mouth so that you can tell somebody else what he says, right? You, you function the exact same way as Moses. It's not, he's not saying like, good luck out there. Just try and guess what I would do, right? He actually has told you it's revealed in his word. It's in the Bible. You can read it all day long. There's actually no limit to how much you can learn about what God wants you to say to people, right? There's no limit to that. You don't have to guess, But secondly, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus has come and ensured a relationship with God and united us to him, that means that God is actually working through you to give you the same words. You have the same opportunity as Moses. When God, when you open your mouth, God can speak through you. You don't have to be intimidated by other people. You don't have to be intimidated by these, by these moments because God is behind you. Lastly, I'll say this. If, you, if you're still like, yeah, I don't know. I'm a little intimidated by what God could call me into. I'm thinking through things. I, I just want to point out this too, that uh, Moses was never actually expected to do any of this alone. Right? In Exodus 3.18, the previous chapter, God says that Moses and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. Right? That's quoted. God gives him the elders to go with him. And when he's still chicken, Right? He's like, all right, and I'll give you, and I'll give you Aaron too. <laughs> right? Moses was supposed to work out this calling in community. Right? He was never expected to go just be solo by himself deliverer. Why? Because, one, he's not the deliverer. God is. God's going to use him, and he actually gives him a whole people, elders, to support him in that calling. If you are not in, like, if you are not in a situation where you have Christians around you, this is called the church, Right? If you are not in a situation where you have Christians around you who can tell you what God has equipped you with, how you can do this, how they can encourage you, how they can tell you, like, this is where I see God leading you. This is where I see he's calling you. Then, like, what, like how are you going to do this, right? Moses couldn't with Pharaoh. Like, I, I don't know if you think you're better than Moses, but, like, uh, you know, the writing's on the wall here. He's pretty, you know, God used him, right? I, I would just say that, uh, you know, We're not just talking about RUF. I mean the body that God has given elders to, right? The actual elders of the church. Like those are the people who are supposed to be walking with you and carrying you through this life and encouraging you and doing the things that Moses needs in order to have God use him in this story. And I would encourage you to do that. That's part of what's assumed about this whole story is that Moses isn't going to operate alone. That you don't have to be intimidated because you're not alone. God uses what we have and he gives us what we need. Let's pray.